0: Good evening, everybody. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 8, and you can stay there. That's one small but very important passage tonight, and uh, let's begin with prayer, and let's thank God for our time together to hear His Word and be grateful for His Word, that no matter where we are, um, what's going on, it doesn't matter, what matters is His Word, and God knows all about it, and through His Word, He will speak to us. So with humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, holy and righteous, please teach us tonight to comprehend the life that you have given us, eternal life. Which is so far above us, but yet you have made us to live in it. You have so fashioned us as new creatures to understand it and to walk in it and to live in it. That and to do that, we you you enable us to or enforce upon us situations and uh, different. Uh, circumstances in our life where we, we have to either trust you or go our own way. and We fail a lot at those tests, and yet your graciousness and patience continue to give them to us, and your word continues to encourage us to pick ourselves up and keep going. And Father, uh, we are grateful for you and in, in these things that you give us, uh, and we're grateful for the the Word of God and for our church, which we can gather and learn and listen. And uh, we're just so grateful, Father, for the ability that you've given us and the life that you've given us and uh, your grace and mercy and love that make it possible and keep us going. And so, Father, uh, as we turn to your this wonderful and, and very important passage uh, tonight, we ask that your spirit enlighten every heart, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, Christianity is never was meant to be um, just theory uh, or just doctrine. Uh, orthodoxy, if you will. It was never meant to be just that, Not that we always need our doctrine and we always need our understanding of the Word of God, of course. But Christianity was always meant to be lived. Uh, In fact, we know that because of the illiteracy rate in in the first century, that the letters written by the writers, uh, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, were meant to be spoken. They were meant to be read to a congregation. uh, and And so they were meant to be heard. And within them, of course, we see the exhortation after exhortation, command after command to, and, and with them, the the uh, truth of understanding of why God gives us these commands, and why particular commands are, are given, uh, and, you know, why they're important, we're told that. Uh, why should we live the way that we live? We're told that, and it's important to know that, you know, the why. And that's in our passage uh, that we'll look at tonight, but... Um, Christianity is meant to be lived, and, you know, the, the bottom line. And, 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 you know, a lot of people do miss that. And, and I, I think, you know, purposely people miss that. I, I know I I did that purposely because at times Christianity is very difficult. Uh, it's not comfortable uh, because your flesh hates it. Uh, so uh, I, I just... Uh, reading a particular book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately. Actually, I have to read this book for a certain class I'm taking. But uh, the person who wrote the introduction to this, this this book is about a Christian community, about the unity of the church that Bonhoeffer wrote. It was actually his Ph.D. was his dissertation was on something similar to that, uh, on on unity in the body. And uh, Bonhoeffer wrote in his last letter from prison, Uh, about what characterized all that he had written about Christianity. And he wrote, quote, a turning away from the phraseological to the real. Meaning, a turning away from just phrasing things properly, or uh, I guess we could say from a um, a theoretical point to a real one. So we'd call it realism. You know, Christianity in the real. Uh, The person who writes the introduction to this book writes this about that, about that thing. He said, for him, for Bonhoeffer, Christianity could never be merely intellectual theory, doctrine divorced from life, or mystical emotion, but always it must be responsible, obedient action, the discipleship of Christ in every situation of concrete, everyday life, personal and public. It's very concise and well put. Uh, and I agree with this a bunch. Uh, when I, when I first picked up Bonhoeffer's, and it's his signature book, Christian Ethics, I still have my original copy in my office. Uh, I bought this book many years ago, and when I started to read it, I put it away, because I thought, so I thought, in my great intellectualism, <laughs> that it was legalistic. Uh, and then later on I picked it up again, and I read it voraciously, and I was ready for it. Uh, and in fact, the, the one book that I wrote on the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes was inspired by that book, uh, Christian Ethics. He really gets to where the rubber meets the road about, look, the Christian way of life is an eternal life, and it has a certain way about it that has to be lived. Uh, and, you know, if you don't want to live it, then you don't want to read that. And I think if you don't want to live it, you also don't want to pray. Because the reality of life demands a reality of communication with the Father. And therefore, if you really want to live the life, and you don't want your prayer life to be theory either, in other words, just some mechanical thing where I just read a list or I read a memorized thing and I just go through the motions, you know, just ritual. And that's why, because, um, you know, we must, and, and I always say this, and I must say it again, we, we must always have doctrine, always, but doctrine must never be divorced from reality. And this is one of the main reasons we must pray consist, consistently, because it's a very real life that has to be lived, as this author puts it, it has to be lived in obedient action, in every situation of concrete, everyday life, personal and public. And uh, that demands a a real relationship with God, not just a theoretical one. And therefore, that demands a real conversation with God. And so in our passage, we turn to Romans 8, Romans 8, 12, Uh, we... We started in verse 1 in this passage yesterday and, and, and just skimmed over it. We, we're just looking at it very broadly. Uh, we didn't, not into great detail, but we saw how it uh, flowed. You know, how the method of this wonderful chapter in the Word of God flows. Uh, and we'll review that here as, as in a few minutes. But the, the last part of the initial paragraph which is uh, verses 12 through 17, that's the last section of it, is where Paul, in this, this thought of who we are in Christ, Right. this is where he said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's Romans 8.1. And who we are in Christ, what that makes us to be, as opposed to what we used to be when we weren't in Christ, but, as he puts it, in the flesh, And the contrast there is incredible because in the flesh, I'm beholden to the flesh, I'm obedient to the flesh, and as Paul puts it here, I'm in debt to the flesh. But as a born again believer, I'm no longer in debt to the flesh, I'm freed from it. The flesh has been crucified with Christ. And. You know, And don't forget, it was Christ bodily who died for me on the cross. As Christ said, here's my body. When he gave us the bread, this is my body which is given for you. So his flesh is destroyed. So our flesh can be destroyed and is destroyed when we believe on him crucified. But as Paul puts it here in Romans 8, though we're set free from the flesh and now under the authority of God, the Holy Spirit, which is a tremendous change. Right, authority of the flesh which is fallen and nasty and sinful and evil and has nothing good about it, to being under the authority of God himself who is glory and light and holiness and everything good. It's a tremendous change. And that tremendous change, as Paul says here, demands an obligation. So it demands of us and, it, and in this way, it is, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little, but in this way, this obligation that we have is not to, like, pay God back. Like, wow, God, you really did a great deed for us, and so, you know, how can I make it up to you? As if we possibly could. It's, it's stupid to think that we could make it up to him. It's the obligation is to live in things like joy and peace and prosperity and to be able to go through anything knowing that God is in you and around you and on you and with you. All those prepositions are used in the New Testament to describe God's place with us. And that I can speak to heaven at any time. And and so that's what Paul gets at here. And there's many great contrasts. The flesh, death and life, the flesh and the spirit, the body and the spirit, and so look at uh, let's look at verse twelve. So what do I have here? Did I not do that? I took away my initial slide. That's cool. All right, so uh, Paul draws his conclusion here. The conclusion is that we're under obligation as sons of God, and as such, in this world, wrapped in this flesh. The the wording that we used yesterday was, we're in the wrong body. Absolutely. This body doesn't want to do what, what, you know, left to itself. It's not going to do righteous things. Fallen human bodies don't do that. So we're wrapped in the wrong body or this flesh. And this all demands that we cry out to him, which is in verse 15. Now let's look at verse 12. So then brethren, what does brethren mean? all the royal family of God, all believers. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we have first contrast is um, flesh and spirit and life and death. So Paul's going to use these dialectically, to reveal the truth to us. um, Where we were and what we are now. And what what were our options before salvation? And what are our options now? And he's going to draw a contrast there. He does it so wonderfully. Uh, And so this obligation, uh, the Greek word is actually the same Greek word that um, is used in the Lord's Prayer where he says, forgive us our debts. Right? So this, this is the same thing. It's the same word, a debtor. You know, we're in debt to someone. Forgive us our debts. Why is it debt? Uh, it's because we're in debt to God. We, we have uh, um, uh, broken his law, and so we're in debt to him. Every time we sin, it's, a, it's another addition to the debt. How could we possibly pay this debt off? Uh, some people think they actually can, which is ridiculous. But only Christ. The, the only thing that could pay this debt was Christ. So our debt, as Paul puts it so beautifully in Colossians, was nailed to the cross. The, the, all those things that we did wrong, all that debt was nailed to the cross. So when that happened, and this is what verse 12 literally says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So it says New American Standard here has we're under obligation. And, you know, to us, I mean, it, it's a good translation of that, but it's it, it, the, the word means debtor. And I think obli- we think of obligation, we don't always think of that we're in debt to somebody. And it, sometimes obligation to us is to I mean, like things that I ought to do. Uh, that I'm obligated to, but this is an actual debt. And what if, and you're in debt to the flesh? I mean, think about that. Who's your master? If you're in debt to the flesh, that means you're the serf, or you're the slave, and the flesh is your master, and you owe him or her. And what a terrible master! It's horrible. Uh, now, the way that this is put, I. And I wonder if Paul is implying that we are debtors, just not to the flesh. It says as we read this, it says, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Uh, and what I would like to translate this as is we are not debtors to the flesh. But where Paul puts the not, he puts it after the verb. so it it has to stay this way. We are debtors not to the flesh. So the implication is that we are debtors. But naturally, of course we are. Who of us has made anything? When you were born, did you make yourself? And you say, well, my parents made, made me. But in reality, that's not true either. Because your parents were made by somebody and going back all down the line, we go back to Adam and Eve and God's the one who made us. You know, Cain and Abel are made by Adam and Eve because God allowed them to be uh, agents in procreation. Uh, But certainly also the soul and the heart, uh, the, the spirit of mankind, this is the breath of God. And none of us have made that. But when we were born, we were born in debt. But debt to the flesh because we're fallen. When we're born again, we didn't make that either. We create nothing. And so when we were born again, we were made new. And now you're in debt to someone else. And that debtor, well, we're the debtor, right? So the, the one who, owes, who owns the debt that we have is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you see the transfer. We go from this master who is the flesh it was terrible and awful and evil and demanding well God is demanding too but in, in a good way and and now our master is the Father so just looking at this from another translation this is an English standard translation it's a very good one um, it, it's uh, I think actually at times I like it better than New American standard but uh, in Romans 8:12 it says so then brothers we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So, they translate this word debtor like it should be, not obligation. We are debtors. It's a noun. Obligation sounds like a verb to us, doesn't it? It sounds like an action or a participle. But this is not. This is a noun. We are something. And we're debtors to the flesh. But Paul says not to the flesh. And that's the good news. So, Paul here is contrasting flesh and spirit, death and life. And we're no longer in debt to the flesh to live according to it. So the contrast between flesh and spirit, death and life. And we're no longer uh, in uh, debt to the flesh. So now, as Paul uh, and as he showed us in verses five through eleven, which we looked at yesterday, where we are those, verse four says, you know there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. we fulfilled the law through the flesh of Christ. Christ died for us, He fulfilled the law, so we fulfilled the law, meaning that we're righteous now, we're imputed with righteousness that has come from God, not from us. And so now we're those who walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. That's what we're designed to do as new creatures. But then in verse five, and right through to 11, Paul told us, look, though you are free from the flesh, the flesh is still present, with it, and we know this, with its passions and desires. I take those two words from Galatians 5.24. And the flesh seeks to perform its deeds. Like, when does it ever stop? Never. It will never leave us alone. It will always seek and look for our weak points. It has desires and passions, and it looks to do its deeds. The good news is that we're no longer in debt to it. And so when we know this, we're going to say, well, look, I have to do this sinful thing because that's who I am. And if I know Romans 8, that's a lie. Right? At least admit to yourself it's a lie, and therefore you can confess that you're not only doing the sin, but you're lying about it. Um You know, Romans 8 tells us that we don't have to do any of it. Now, of course, the Bible says you're never going to be sinlessly perfect, and we must always reiterate that. But, you know, is the spirit in us stronger than the flesh? And, of course, it is by miles. But it's our choices that either, um, you know, allow us or allow the spirit to empower us and teach us and show us the way and enlighten us and it's our decisions that allow the flesh to take over. But so we see here that the the flesh has deeds. So look at verse 13, for if you're living according to the flesh you must die. Now, whether what Paul means by that is that, you know, physical death, uh does he mean spiritual death? He would not mean spiritual death because he's writing to believers, even though some believe that but regardless of what Paul, he could mean being out of fellowship. Uh, we don't know. And that's the best way to answer it. <laughs> you can say, well, this is my opinion. But opinion means nothing. It's revelation from God. And does Paul mean that you know, if you live according to sin, you're going to die early? Or is he still talking about the unbeliever? You know, Is he saying if you're like the unbeliever or like you were, you must die? Um, whatever he's talking about here when it comes to death, we conclude easily that death is not good. And so uh, we should not do this. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Whatever Paul means by that, he is emphatically telling us that we should not live according to the flesh. That's a big revelation, right, from the Word of God. You kind of already knew that. Yeah, all of Christianity already knows that. But this is, so if, you know, if he stops there, we just say, all right, Paul, thanks for the reminder. But the, what's wonderful here is the contrast. And again, you have flesh and spirit, life and death. And that's to people who are living, right? I'm living. I'm living, but I can be carnal. I'm living, but I can be sinful. But I'm also living and I could be alive. And alive how? Well, we'll see what he's talking about is eternal life. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But, contrast, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I say, Paul, does this mean that if I sin, I'm going to drop dead? Well, if that were the case, there'd be nobody here. The whole planet Earth would be empty. Uh, it would have been emptied a long time ago. If, if <clears throat> the only way I'm going to stay alive is I put to death the deeds of the body. Well, obviously this life that Paul is talking about is more than biological life. And of course, he, does, he doesn't He does use the Greek word bios, which is the word for just biology. He uses zoe. And zoe means life, soul life, uh, spirit life. It mean, It means to be alive. But uh, this life that he speaks of in this context certainly means eternal life, the life that we've been given by Christ. So this takes us back to <clears throat> the beginning of the chapter. We're those who walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And that's what this life is that he's speaking of here. And this harkens us back to verse 11. If you go back to verse 10... This is also wonderfully tied together. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. Now, and I love what Paul does here, too, just to you know sneak it in. Not to give you too many things to think about, because we, we don't want to get too much of a headache here. But he will talk about flesh and then talk about body, and he sort of equates the two. All right, so... <clears throat> It's, he could, if we, if he wrote, though the flesh is dead because of sin, we wouldn't have batted an eye. But he uses it, and it's a different Greek word, soma, uh, body. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and Paul uses this as an example, is the Holy Spirit, you know, someone of life. Uh, Someone powerful. Well, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And if that Spirit dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Life to your mortal body. Now getting back to verse 13, He speaks of the deeds of the body. Not the deeds of the flesh, but the deeds of the body. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he, he makes a connection here between flesh and body. And why is that important? Is that Paul is sure to not let us think that the flesh is some, you know, mystical, theoretical, inner thing that is not connected to this fleshly thing. But in fact, he equates the two. Where is this flesh that he keeps speaking of? The Greek word is sarx. What is it? What, 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 where is it? And it's in the members of my body. Wrong body. It's got the wrong one. And I went to the store and got the wrong one. And I'm stuck with it. Right? It's flawed. It's broken. I'm stuck with it. But he just told us, if the spirit of, that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then that spirit will give life even to the wrong body. When I say wrong, you know what I mean. I mean, it's, it's sinful. It's fallen. Now that we're born again and saved, we're destined for a resurrection body, and we long for it. He writes that in this chapter, in, chapter, in verse 23. We groan in this body, longing for the redeemed one. And uh, so Paul, therefore, connects the term flesh with what may be called the sinful nature that we possess. So how is it connected to the flesh? Because, you know, the Gnostics taught that your body is evil, so just ignore it or don't worry about it. Let it do what it need The, the, the one I would have fallen for in Gnosticism would have been. Because Gnosticism either taught your body's evil, so you need to... Beat it to death. You need to be like an ascetic and a monk. You know, be a, a, a cloistered monastic life. Uh, the other, there was another form of Gnosticism that said, well, your body's evil, so just give it whatever it wants. It's unredeemable. You can't do anything with it. Uh, as I, I heard today a phrase that said, cheer up, boys, there's no hope. <laughs> cheer up, there's no hope. Right, there's nothing you can do about it, and that's kind, That was a Gnostic thought, and say so I would have, I would have fallen right into that. I would have, I would have liked that one. Just give my body what it wants because my body wants all the time. So uh, sure, you know, and I can be spiritual in my head. Gnostic said, oh, uh, even more so. Right, free yourself from all this struggle within, and be spiritual within, and just give your body whatever it desires. <sighs> You think Gnosticism was popular? You bet it was. Uh, and Paul especially had to write a, a against that. And probably this part of Romans is, is an attack upon it too. That look, your body, as he says in Romans six, the members of your body are to be used. Sorry, the yeah, the members of your body are to be used for instruments of righteousness. Romans six thirteen. Now, when he says body, here's another thing. We have to make sure that we don't think these thoughts. If Paul's saying the body, it's just the body, well, what about my thoughts? He's, is he not dealing with thought? Because you know, that's where sin begins. And look, I could do nothing with my body and still be very sinful. I could be very moral with my body, yet in my mind be full of hate, bitterness, judgmental, and so on. Uh, But we have to remember that the brain is a part of the body. And the brain has fleshly deeds as well. It's just when the brain has fleshly deeds, it's in the form of thought. So, if through the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the body, we will live. Throughout the New Testament, what is this life? Throughout the New Testament, eternal life is discerned by the writers of Scripture as not a duration of life, they hardly ever. Actually, now that I think about it, I can't remember one instance where they think where they talk about eternal life just being super long. All right? I've heard people say this. What are we going to do in heaven? Did I just die? Oh, oh. <laughs> see, death and life. Kaboom! If I if I died now, it'd have been right resurrection body, right on camera. That'd have been great. Um. What am I going to do in heaven? Millions of years? Am I going to get, am I going to get bored? Well, the writers never talk about, I, I shouldn't say never, but I, I can't think of an instance where it talks about billions and billions, you know, like Carl Sagan, billions and billions. Remember that? We're all in this room old enough to know Carl Sagan. But uh, it talks about, when, when it comes to eternal life, the writers talk about quality of life. It's a type of life. It's a way of life, is eternal life. Look at uh, Galatians 6.8. This is my favorite passage for this. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, it's either salvation by works, or it means that those who have eternal life actually either experience it and reap benefits from it, or they don't. And they sow to the flesh and reap corruption. And, you know, we've just got to be honest with ourselves about this. This is what the Bible is so... Like, look at That passage is written by the great Apostle Paul, and that could have been written by an eighth grader. Maybe less. You know, it's not complex. And it's either one or the other. And, it's, and again, the contrast is flesh and spirit, life and death. Death is corruption. Eternal life is life. And it's really simple. And what our sin nature wants us to do is kind of make a way in which we, you know, the, is there something in between life and death? Can we get something like kind of in the middle? Right, and that's like what uh, vampires, zombies, uh, you know, something like that. Like we we come up with this stuff. Maybe Satan comes up and say, "Yeah, you can be kind of alive and kind of dead," but uh, we cannot. Like it's you know what what what's presented to us is that you know you have one or the other, and make your choice, and and know that it's black and white, so that you don't play games with this. And when you choose for your flesh, know that you've chosen for your flesh. All in. You went all in and chose for your flesh. You're tempted. You went for it. It's your fault. It's not someone else's fault. It's your fault. Confess it, repent, and move on. And accept the consequences because there are always some. So um, hence the infinite value of crying out to your father as often as necessary. So, Paul is going to, when we conclude this little paragraph, which I'm sure we'll do before we leave, is that, um, you know, we are those who are adopted. And he, this con, the contrast he's going to use there is um, a slave to the flesh or adopted by God. So, an adoption is, you know, which one in the ancient world, you could adopt a slave. Uh, usually in the ancient world, adoption was an adult thing. You adopted adults, not not infants. Um, but you know, it's, the contrast is between having the flesh as your master or having the father as your father. Not in, 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 and that's why we cry out. So uh, when, we're, when we have the flesh as our master, we live in fear because he's a terrible master. And punishment is always around the corner. That's what fear is. Fear is the fear of punishment. The you know, the flesh doesn't do much good and it always ends up doing things that are worthy of punishment. And so people live in fear. And then you have well, the contrast is being a son of the living God. And there's no fear in that. In fact, the 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 response is not fear, but crying out, Father. To the, the very perfectly holy Almighty God, crying out, Father. And it's amazing, it's the contrast Paul makes here is amazing. So, life, therefore, is manifested when we are, through faith in the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. It's not going to make us sinless, but this is us, by faith, saying, there's a certain life I have to live, I've been made for it, and I'm going to go for it. And when the body says, let's not do that, let's do something else, I'm going to say, no. Simple as that. How am I going to get the power to say no? Faith. Faith makes me want to choose the better Faith makes me want to choose it. Am I going to bat a thousand? No, but I'm going to. When I strike out, I'm going to get in that batter's box, box again, and I am going to try and hit. All right, so uh, life is manifested when, through the Holy Spirit, we're putting to death the deeds of the body. Is that theologically complex? No, it's very simple. And keeping in sight of the whole chapter, back in chapter 7, verse 25, 24, and 25, all of us are wretched people. But we have been set free, and there is no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has fulfilled the law in His flesh and fulfilled the law for us so that we're no longer under the law. But we walk by the Spirit. Still, we are not free from the potential and dreadful influences of the flesh under which mind and body will sin. But far more powerful is the Holy Spirit within us whose power Paul illustrates by the resurrection of Christ. If you could raise Christ from the dead, then he can give life to your body even though it's mortal. Then reiterating our new position, Paul states that we're obligated or should we say in debt, but no longer to the flesh. And that if by the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the body, then we'll live. And here it seems that Paul is transitioning now from showing us what we have from eternal life, that we have eternal life, to actually living eternal life. So the, pro- the progression is, is simple, but genius. So now we move to living eternal life. We have it set free from the law Uh, We're no condemnation, forgiven of all things, we're made new, and then now it's to live it. So this change now at this place is with the word leading. And this is a pretty common word in the New Testament, ago, one of my vocab words, so I know this word. (laughs) And uh, it means to lead all it means, go, A-G-omega, or alpha, gamma, omega. And, and so it's used quite a bit in the New Testament. So it's just common. There's no complexity to it. It's just like, look, someone's going to grab you by the, not force you, right? Not going to grab you by the throat and pull you, but is actually going to go in a certain direction and they're going to say, follow me. Or it's very uh, a theme in the Gospel of John, which starts in chapter 1, where the Lord said to uh, John and Andrew, "Come and see." Now, and this is all throughout. Pick up your cross and follow me. Follow me. I'm going to go a certain way. I've enabled you to follow, as Hebrews says. It's a uh, Hebrews nine. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, nine. Why is that messing up in my head? I think it's nine. No, it's ten. Does it matter? Right now, for some reason. Uh, <coughs> Right now, my head is like the most important thing. But the uh, the door is open to a new and living way. So that new and living way is the way that Jesus is going, the Father, the Holy Spirit. So he says, look, come and see. Follow me. So we're no longer debtors to the flesh, but now we're led by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Boy, I, when uh, you know controversies surround the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and uh, when the Rebound controversy happened years ago, this was one of the passages that you know I clung to, and said, "Well, look, people say, well, you know, you you know, this uh, God just turns his back on you or something because you haven't confessed your sins," and but I'm like, I said, you know, Lord. You know, it's not right to sin, and you should confess your sins. Absolutely. You know, but does God turn his back on you? Um, Well, I mean, you know, what about Romans 8, 14? You know, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This means that all of us are being led by the Spirit. The Spirit's never going to quit on us. Your Father's never going to quit on you. He's never going to turn his face from you, ever. Because you're in his Son. You're in the Beloved. We're led Now, sometimes that leading, you know, we're not... Sometimes he's always leading and we're not following. And so with the Spirit, if we keep the imagery, the Spirit's going to turn around and come back and kick our behinds. You know, he's going to discipline us. Uh, God will discipline. But we are led by the Spirit. And that's the great contrast. This is yet another contrast. So we have flesh and spirit, life and death. And here we have leading... And, you know, being a slave, being a slave to the flesh or being led by the spirit. And so now comes another word. So in verse 14, we have leading and in verse 15, we have receiving. So receiving, verse 15, you have not received, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again slavery to sin and death which lead to the fear of punishment. Because <clears throat> what is the spirit of slavery? It's the spirit of fallen man. We're all born with it and we're all born to eventually be very afraid. We're all born slaves to sin and eventually death. When we're very young, we don't really understand death yet. But if it comes upon us, something like I, I'm, I'm very aware of the, of my child now, I, and I, and you know, it's as I've seen for other children. Why do kids get scared? You know, why do little kids get scared of the dark, monsters under the bed, all of that? I thought <laughs> Chris and I laugh about this all the time because uh, I was uh, one of my initial memories. Of when, I was a ke- when I was little, there was a big brown coat in my closet. So we, had, we were in a fairly old house when I grew up, and there was not so many, You know, back then they had little tiny closets. And so, you know, everybody's closet was used, all us kids. There were four bedrooms, and there were five kids, and, you know, we, we had to bunk up and stuff. But when I, I had my own room finally, but my, my closet's full of all my parents' old clothes and stuff. There's a big brown jacket in there, and it was dark, and I'm looking in the closet, and that brown jacket looks like a bear to me, and it looks like, uh, and I am sure it's a bear. So I am under the covers, you know, so scared, and I heard my brother, Tim, (laughs) walking down the hall, and I, I called him, and I called him in, and he came in, and he asked me what was up, and I told him, and I said, is that a bear? And he went to the closet and checked it, and he said, no, it's a coat. And I was relieved, and then he walked away. And then I told this story to to Chris, and Chris said, he didn't take the coat out of the closet? And I was like, you know what? No, he did not. Did I take the coat out of the closet? No, I never did. (laughs) For months, I just thought there was a bear in my closet. His are idiots. They're not nice, and they're idiots. Anyway, what am I talking about here? Fear, again, we all, all of us fallen human beings, we fear our decisions. We know what we ought to do and we ought not to do, and we don't want to do them. We fear the consequences, even though we kind of push ourselves, you know, we're part of society, so we kind of do what we should do. Uh, Criminality in our nation is rising. People are losing that uh, restraint, uh, that is put upon us by the police not the laws but anyway uh, there's fear and so what the contrast you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba Father and you see and so throughout this we have this great contrast and we're to live according to the good one so what we should note here first is that we don't make anything. We receive. Right, see, Paul, uh, this word means to, means to receive. It's the exact same spelling used in both instances, the same verb, ten, voice, tense, and mood of the verb. You have not received a spirit of slavery, which is what you were born with. And that means fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, and by adoption, we're in the family. The change is enormous. See, and this is why we cry out to the Father. It's not, we're, also, we're privileged to cry out to the Father, but we still have this flesh and the desires of the flesh and the deeds of the body, and we have this wonderful life to live. And we have to live it, as Bonhoeffer said, in reality, not in theory, in reality. And if we're not in constant or consistent contact with our Father through prayer to try and understand, to get encouragement, to tell him thank you, uh, to adore him and worship him, to ask him for stuff, to ask him for clarity, to ask him for strength and wisdom, and in real time. If we're going to say, Father, you know, I don't need you today. I'm going to go it on my own. Look at what's at stake here. This is not some like kind of nicer life that all of us can pull off. It's not like a little less sin, like God said, you know, if you could clean your act up a little bit, that'd be great. Or you know, if you could not be such a pain in the butt, you know, just a little less annoying. You know, like what He didn't give us some earthly human. Life to live that's just a little better than what it used to be. Actually, even a, not even a lot better. It's infinitely better. It's of a different kind. It's not even of the same genre. It's not the same source. That the life of slavery, which was flesh and death and sin and fear is now contrasted with Holy Spirit, God himself, life, adoption, meaning a place in the family, and and now and, and the ability to speak with our Father, cry out to our Father at any time, in any place. And you know, if we don't take advantage of that, we just kind of go through the motions and think, well, this... Being in the wrong body and in the wrong world, right? We're members of the kingdom of God. We're citizens of heaven. So the part of this change, amazing change, is an, an amazing life must be lived consistently. His father has adopted you. He has given you his name in Ephesians three fifteen. He's made you a citizen of his country. Philippians three twenty. He has built you a home in that country. John 14, 2. He promises that if we love and obey him, he will build his house with us in this life. John 14, 23. the unbeliever will find himself praying at times, right? When does the unbeliever pray? When it's, oh God, help. That's when they do it. Why do they pray? Because they're afraid. They pray when they're afraid. The atheist prays when he's afraid. Uh... And I'm sure God hears those prayers, not that they're the best kind, but who knows? You know, it could be a step towards the gospel. And so we have this crying out to God and a life that where we fear God, but we're not afraid of life. And we're not afraid of him, we're not afraid of death. As a reading about Bonhoeffer in that introduction and it's been years I read his biography years and years ago. I hardly remember it, but um, when he was at that last prison camp uh, where the one that he was executed in, amazingly enough, two weeks after he was Bonhoeffer was executed, the camp was liberated by the Russians, I think. And uh, so if they had, he, he was very close to living. But anyway, while he was there, there's one person who wrote about him and they were in that camp. They weren't all Jews. There were people from all over. There were people from England, all the allied uh, countries. And one guy wrote of Bonhoeffer that he was so happy to be alive that he said in this man you could see that his walk through life was a walk with God. And he would teach them that he'd have... uh, um, you know, little times where he'd, he'd uh, teach classes or teach doctrine, and um, you know, and when he was called, anyway, the guy said he was happy. He was even though in a, he was engaged to a beautiful girl that he loved. He never, never got to see her uh, in years, and uh, and knew he was imminently to die, which he did. And they said he was, you know, joyful. Because he was with God. And he took everything. as His last sermon that he, he taught in that camp was, I believe, on the passage, By His Stripes You Are Healed, from Isaiah 53. And uh, when, when, he went, when he was called to go get executed, he was hung. Uh, he said to this person who wrote about him, he said, You will live on, but I go on to really live, or something like that. All right, and <clears throat> what does that mean? You know, it, It'd be great if we all had that kind of courage. I, I, we'll never know in, until we're in their situation. I pray that we never are. But um, why are we not afraid? When we're not afraid. And it's because of the love of God. All right, why do we have Romans 8? Because God so loved the world that he gave us his son. That's why we have it. Why can we turn to Romans 8 and say, yeah, there's, yeah, this, Romans 8 is kind of like our biography. It's our, 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 um, our story. It's a, this is who you are in Romans 8. Romans 8 is who God has made you to be. And so in 1 John four eighteen through 19, John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love we love because he first loved us god's love casts out the fear of punishment am i going to be judged no am i going to be kicked out of the family no am i going to and you know is is god going to do anything but love me and be for me and not against me no he will be nothing else ever what about sins I've committed? You, know, you you suffer for them. Does God want you to do those? Nope. But he's forgiven every one of them. And in that, you know, by whatever means, if it's the incredible depth of God's forgiveness that wakes us up, so be it. If it's God's discipline and pain that wakes us up, so be it. And each of us are a bit different in that so we have to be careful about judging one another. Actually, not just be careful, just not do it. (laughs) It's against the law. So uh, we, you know, all of us have different battles and obstacles. And we we all got to get to the same place. But Romans 8 is true of every believer. Every believer, that is true. And that's why we got to keep praying. That's why I use it. I use this passage just for the Abba Father. But there's no point in saying, all right, let's turn to Romans 8, 15. All right, everybody say it. Abba, Father, and let's go on. If you don't know the context of Romans 8, then Abba, Father doesn't mean all that much. I like uh, in verse 15, that's the English Standard Version. This this is a great version. This New uh, Living Translation. Uh, was done by a Greek scholar. I've mentioned this before, but I'll will mention again. You know, it's um, I like to remind that sometimes I don't you know have a lot to say, so I'll just say the same stuff. But no, no that's not true. Uh, but uh, the New Living, it's a a guy, a Greek scholar, wrote out the New Testament from the Greek for his kids, and it was so well done. And so I, I don't I forget the story about who who had found it and read it. It was so well done that a publisher asked him to publish it, and uh, and he did. It's a great translation. And it's more, it's a little more, uh, uh, my Greek professor calls it NIVing the language, but, uh, you know, it's kind of massaged a bit to make it a little more modern. But uh, verse, uh, Romans eight fifteen, 15, he says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. So we... uh, now we call him Abba, Father. It's a massage, the little two-bit, I think. But it's all right. It's it's nice to read different translations and kind of get a feel uh, for... The New American Standard sticks closest to the original out of all the translations, and that's why we use it. So now in uh, verses 16 and 17, just to finish this up, uh we have to be assured of all of this if you know this is wonderful stuff being set free from the law being in Christ no condemnation and all of this stems from the fact that we're adopted as sons through the cross of Christ and our faith in the gospel to become sons and daughters of the living god that's incredible you know we're used to it and there's a reason why you're used to it because you're assured of it and why are you assured you haven't seen God, you haven't heard him, you haven't seen Christ, you haven't touched him, you haven't hurt, you haven't heard him, not audibly. But in Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit Himself, you know, back to the Spirit. And what's wonderful about sixteen and seventeen, which is the end of this paragraph, flesh and body are not here anymore. Right? Verses sixteen it's one sentence. But he doesn't mention the flesh again. He doesn't mention the deeds of the body again or anything like that. In every sentence he's written in this chapter so far, there's been something about the flesh or death or, uh, or the body, and deeds of the body. In this passage, we just have us and the Spirit in this sentence. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, so this reassures us. What reassures us? The Holy Spirit within you makes it clear to you that you're an adopted child And when someone comes up to you and says, you know, you might not be saved because of this, 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 this. We say to such a person, no, that doesn't make any sense. Not only does it make any sense, it's just wrong. And even they say, well, how can you be sure? Uh, Can I prove I'm saved from the Scripture? Technically, I say, Well, I believe in a way, yeah. You know, there's the gospel in the scripture, and the scripture says, Believe the gospel, and you will be saved. So I say, I believe the gospel. Well, you know, there's people, they're all around now. People are say, But did you really believe? You know, did you have a heart faith? Or was your faith kind of like a head faith? Did you have a heart faith? Was it really deep faith? I say, Well, I don't know. What's the difference? What's a head faith and a heart faith? What's the difference? (laughs) And they'll say, well, if you had a heart faith, you'd have all of these good deeds. Well, all right. I guess I think I've had some good deeds. How many have I had? How many do I need? And were they really all that good? I mean, I've done good things, but maybe at the back of them I was ultimately doing them just because I thought I should or other people were looking or actually deep down in the recesses of the cesspool of insanity that is my soul, that there was some ulterior reason that I did these good things? Am I really sure that I've done good things? And no one can answer that. You know, uh, this was great, and we, we finished up in theology class, the church today, It's like the doctrine of the church. What is the body of Christ for? It's a really great study. But um, at the the tail end of it was spiritual gifts, which we just kind of had, for the sake of time, rush in. But my professor, uh, Dr. Anderson, had a, a questionnaire, and you filled it out. And it was like, do you like to do this? Do you like to do that? Do you normally do this? Do you normally do that? And it was like 30 questions, and you, like, clicked them off. And each question had like a letter attached to it. And you counted up all the letters. And then you flipped it over and it told you what your spiritual gift was. <laughs> it was great. And I took it. and Mine was not pastor teacher. So I told I told Anderson that I had to quit. Uh, mine ended up being encouragement. I was like, well, this test doesn't work. Because I'm not. I mean, maybe from behind the pulpit. Now I guess I'm a little better at that than I used to be. But anyway. Why am I talking about this? Because I'm done? Because I'm finished? And, you know, this, this final point I want to make out of this passage is that we have to be sure. I, if, this, if this stuff about that Paul has written about us is just theory, or I kind of think, you know, I, I, I believe in Christ my Savior. I know He's my Savior. But, you know, is this, very, is this real? Am I really indwelt by Him? Am I really alive in Christ? Am I really adopted into the family of God? Am I really led by God the Holy Spirit? Think about it. Having a leader, you can't get any better than that by miles. Is that really true? And I know a lot of Christians sit on the fence with that. They're not going to admit it, you know, but, you know, do you, is it really true? Is it your reality? Let's think about it. Therefore, what's visible before us is not reality. All of this is temporary. Even Even our bodies. These are temporary things. But the reality, which is eternal, is all invisible. And assurance comes by God the Holy Spirit. So if you're not sure about the whole thing, even as a believer, and that's very possible, you can be a believer who says, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure of the truth of them, but, you know, does does temporal things, are they more real to me than the Spirit of God say? And, you know, we have to, we keep learning the Word of God. We keep, this why prayer is so important. We have to keep in contact with the Father and, and glean from him in our prayer life, not only the understanding of truth, but the reality of truth. That's another. That could be a whole other aspect of prayer. A type of prayer. There's a type of prayer to, to discern and learn the truth. There's a type of prayer to make the truth a reality. And speaking to the author and perfecter of faith. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for... Uh, This great passage, thank you that in Romans 8 you have so clearly and wonderfully displayed the reality that is us, who you have made us to be. The life that results from that, that we are indebted to, is above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. So we seek your help, Father, by means of your Spirit and power through your Spirit To see it and live it and understand it and rejoice in it. That we may walk with the Spirit. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.